0: We look forward to that day when we meet you face to face. Some of those that have gone on ahead of us already are there with you rejoicing today as they see with their eyes. No longer They don't have to see with faith anymore. They can see with their eyes who you are. We look forward to that day. And we are so thankful that we're dressed, not in our own righteousness, but we're dressed in the righteousness of Christ, which is preparing for us this amazing gift of eternal salvation. So be with us this morning as we study your word. Help us to know you better today, uh, having studied you, uh, and I pray that that knowledge of you would change our lives uh, day to day. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to read the section that goes from verse 13 down to verse 21. Last week, we focused on verses 13 to 16. Today, we'll look at verses 17 to 21, but this is really one cohesive paragraph. And so I think it's helpful uh, to read it all so that you have the context uh, to help us understand our verses this morning. So follow along as I read, starting in verse 13 down to verse 21. If you have a Bible, follow there, or if you want to follow on the screen, you can look there as well. like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Let's pray again. God, these are your words inspired by your spirit, for our edification, for your glory. And so help us now to understand them well. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, his name was Mr. Gallagher. And he was a living legend. He was my high school math teacher back in rural southern Indiana. When he wasn't around, the other students used to call him Chopper, uh, which was a term of endearment because he used to like to ride this motorcycle around on the weekends. So we called him Chopper uh, when he wasn't within hearing distance. He was an he was an older teacher. He was drawing nearer to his time of retirement. By the time I had him in class, uh, he was heavier set. Uh, he often wore a blue button-down shirt, uh, and a pair of slacks to class. He had these small glasses that he wore, and and the little bit of hair that he had left, uh, which was very thin and gray, was always combed neatly uh, to one side of his head. On the very first day of my freshman math class, Mr. Gallagher stood in front of us, and he told us the following. He said, I am Mr. Gallagher, and I will be your math teacher for the next four years. Some of you will make it in my class, and some of you will not, because there comes a point in every person's brain when you can learn no more. It can become full, and I hope that that's not you in my class. He went on to say, before I was a school teacher, I served in the U.S. military as a sharpshooter. I was so good, I could shoot a rabbit between the eyes from 500 yards away. And every year, that distance would grow a little bit longer. (laughs) He said, I have eyes in the back of my head. There is nothing that happens in this classroom that I don't know is happening. He said, every movement that's made in this class, I see it. Every funny look, I know about it. I know this room. He said there will be no homework given uh, in the no homework collected in this class or graded in this class, but I suggest that you do every problem I give you because if you do not, you will fail my test. And if I think you're not getting the concept as I'm teaching it. I will call you up to the chalkboard and you will work every problem right there in front of the rest of the class so they can see. Are there any questions in my class? <laughs> now, as you can imagine, as a tiny, timid little freshman, I was about ready to pass out at this point. My my heart's beating, uh, my palms are sweaty, and secretly inside of my head, I was trying to remember if I learned anything that morning or if I was one of the cursed few that had already, it was full. I Doomed to fail this class. And he kept his word. Man, he kept his word. If you didn't keep up with his class, he would send you up to the board and you would work your problems there in front of the rest of the class. And you would either get it quickly or you would walk the walk of shame back to your desk when he would call on Brad or Tristan or somebody else to come up and finish the problem that you couldn't complete on the board. Every one of Chopper's tests consisted of 18 problems. That was it, 18 problems. And uh, Chopper didn't score us by how many we got right. Rather, he scored us by how many we got wrong. And he would hand back his, your papers, and on the top of your paper would be written minus one, minus two, however many you missed out, out of 18. But before he would hand our papers back to us, he would walk up to the chalkboard and he would take a piece of chalk and he would write all the scores on the board. Minus one, minus two, minus two and a half, so on and so forth. And he would get down to a certain point on the board and he would draw this gigantic line. And then he would draw the rest of the scores underneath that line, minus 13, minus 14. Remember, there's only 18 questions, right? And he would announce... Now, when I hand back your test, if your test score is below that line, you are not cutting the mustard. That's what he would say. You're not cutting the mustard. You're failing my class. Now, you should imagine everyone had this reverent fear of Chopper. You didn't goof off in, in Chopper's class. You, you didn't slack on your homework. You didn't want to be below the mustard-cutting line, okay? There was this healthy fear there that if you did any of those things that displeased Chopper, you would face the honest and sometimes hard discipline of Chopper. You know what's something else I came to discover about Chopper? He had, yes, a very unconventional teaching style. Probably would get him fired today if he was still a teacher. But he also had a love for his students. If you were one of the fortunate ones that scored 100% on your test, when he would come around and hand out the test scores, and he got to your desk and you had 100, he would stand there, he'd give you a wink, and he'd put out his hand. He, would sh- he wouldn't say a word. He'd shake your hand. He'd give you this little smile like you did it. You did it. And there, if, if you got a handshake from Chopper, you knew you were going to succeed in life. In life, not just in his class, in life. You were going to make it. You know why? Because what I came to discover about Chopper is he wasn't just teaching us math. He was teaching us how to think. He was teaching us how to work out problems. He really did love us. He really did care. He had high expectations, and he had a high love for his students. And combined with that, he wasn't afraid to discipline if he needed to. And you bring these two things together, and you had this amazing person of a teacher. Now, Why do I tell you all of that about my high school math teacher? Because I think in some ways it's a human illustration of what Peter is trying to teach us about God in these verses. Verses 17 to verse 21. In verses 17 to 21 of 1 Peter, Peter is going to show us how God loves us. And yes, God has high standards for us, but he loves us very much. And at the same time, God has the right and the obligation to discipline those he loves. And when you bring those two things together and you hold those two things in tandem, the love of God and the discipline of God, what you end up finding are people who have a reverent fear of that God a healthy kind of fear of that God. It becomes a motivating factor. You know God loves you. You know he has high standards. You know he's for you. And you also know he's not afraid to discipline you if necessary. And those bring about this motivation to follow after that kind of a God. If you grew up in a healthy, functional family, the same thing happened at home, right? I mean, if you had parents that loved you, uh, parents that cared for you, they hugged you, they fed you, they gave you uh, food and shelter. But if you crossed them, you also knew that they could and they would discipline. Why? It's like Ryan said earlier, it's because they loved you, right? If your parents didn't love you, they would just ignore you but because they love you and they want to see you grow and mature and come into this adulthood they discipline you when they needed to when you when you stepped outside of the boundaries and so you grew up with this reverent fear for mom and dad it wasn't a terror it wasn't a dread or or a horror But rather, it was a healthy respect for mom and dad because you knew there were expectations and you knew there were consequences if you didn't follow those. The same thing was true for chopper. The same thing is true for police out on the street. And the same thing is true for God. And this is what Peter wants us to understand, okay? So let's see how this plays out in our day-to-day lives. If you were here last week, I titled the sermon, Grace Leading to Holiness. And today we're going to look at reverence leading to holiness. Last week, we talked about the grace of God, and that leads us to a place that we want to follow him because we understand how much grace he has given us. That grace actually appears again in our text uh, this morning. And so I want to draw on that as kind of the starting point because I want us to understand the love of God for us. So that when we come to the discipline, we'll see that not as a harsh and mean thing, but as a loving component of this God who wants to form us and grow us, okay? So let me start with this simple statement, if you want to jot this down. The love of God toward you was not an afterthought. The love of God toward you was not an afterthought if you were a believer here this morning the love of god toward you was not an accident it was not plan b it was not some afterthought in the mind of god from eternity past there was not a moment of time when you were not on the loving mind of god here's why i say that look down at the text and glance down again at verse 20 in the first part of verse 20 Notice that Peter says, He, that's Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Okay, so that little phrase there means uh, that Jesus was known beforehand. He was known before creation even came into being he was known he was loved if you have an niv in your in your hands you'll notice that it says uh, he was chosen uh, before the creation of the world jesus was known by god loved by god chosen by god before he formed anything else uh, in order to accomplish his purposes you know who else was foreknown by god before the foundation of the world you were If you're a believer, in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, here it is, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In eternity past, God had this plan in his mind that he would create. And the pinnacle of his creation would be these humans, men and women, that would be his image bearers. But he also knew that in this plan, uh, those image bearers would rebel and they would need a savior. So in this plan of God, he chose Christ to be that savior, this pre-existent son of God who was with him. He would use this son. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. He would use him to go into the world in order to save rebellious men and women. You, if you are a believer, were on his mind as the recipient of that salvation that Jesus would come and provide. Okay, You were on his mind to receive grace and love and mercy. So his love for you began long before you ever knew him. But all of this was played out in time and space. And so in the unfolding redemptive plan of God, he created the universe. He created Adam and Eve. And what did Adam and Eve do? They rebelled, right? And then they started having babies. And all the babies that ever came after Adam and Eve, they were all born with this sinful nature, thousands and millions of people, Continued to come on the scene through all of the ages, every one of them coming with a marred image. They were image bearers of God, but the image was distorted and it was it was ugly. And so just at the right time, exactly when God plotted out his plan of salvation, he turns to Jesus and he says, Go. Go. Go down into the world, into the earth, and pay the penalty for the sin of mankind. So look again at verse 20. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest. That means he was visible. He came into his humanness in the last times for the sake of you. Jesus, who was with God from the beginning and is God, took on human flesh. He was made manifest. He, he appeared. He came into the world. We call that Christmas, by the way. this when he came. Why did he do that? Because we're not holy. Like, God is holy. We, we couldn't keep that perfect standard of, of God's morality and justice and love. We've all failed. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And so Jesus came into the world to pay the ransom, to, to pay the debt. Well, what was the debt? Jesus said, if you sin, you die. The wages of sin... His death, we've all earned death, and we had this debt that we owed him. We owed him our life, and God chose instead to send his son to be that ransom. Look at verses 18 and 19. Knowing that you were ransomed, there it is, you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, that is, everything that was handed down to you all the way from Adam. You were ransomed not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. For those of you that are parents, probably one of the most uh, tragic and maybe difficult things to go through, uh, and heaven forbid this ever happened, but one of your children being kidnapped. And the, and the kidnapper is contacting you and saying, here's the ransom you must pay. And as a, as a parent, you'd be willing to pay a lot to get that child back, right? Uh, You might pay with uh, silver, and that would be worth a lot. Uh, You might pay with gold, that would be worth a lot. But if you wanted to pay the ultimate price to get your child back, you might go as far as to tell that kidnapper, I will exchange my life for the life of my child. If you will just send my child back, I will come in his or her place. That is the ultimate act of love, and that is exactly what God did. God said, I will send my own son. I I won't just offer up any old life. I will send my own son, my one and only, the second member of the Trinity, the God-man himself, I will send him into the world to pay the ransom. That's why verse 19 says it's, precious blood it's precious it's expensive it's valuable when jesus died there on the cross there was nothing more valuable than that there was nothing of greater worth than the spotless perfect blemish free life of jesus christ listen there is not one moment of your life when you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might and with all of your strength. But there is not one moment of time that Jesus has failed to do that. That's why he's perfect. He's precious. There is nothing of greater worth. He is the only thing that could pay the price to satisfy the justice of God. Toward the sin of man. And so Jesus becomes the Lamb of God. That Lamb language is taken out of the Old Testament and is taken out of the New. In Isaiah 53, 7, it says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. John takes that, Lamb language, and he applies it to Jesus in John chapter 1, verse 29. He says, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus becomes the spotless Lamb, the the only one that's worthy to die in our place. He was the only one who lived perfectly. He was the only one who could accomplish these things. But did Jesus stay dead? Of course not. We know he didn't. Look at verse 21, go back to your Bible, verse 21. You, through him, are believers in God, and here it is, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. The night before Jesus died, Jesus prayed in John 17. He says, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And when Jesus rose out of that grave and several days later ascended back to the right hand of the Father, the Father bestowed on him all of the glory that he had before he had left the Father. And Jesus was given the name Lord. He's Lord. It's the name to which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. He is Lord, Jesus received all of the splendor and all of the glory when he returned to the Father's side. Now, Peter lays all of that out for us. The ransom, the precious blood of Christ, the glory given to God, the foreknowing of Jesus. And he wraps that in with the foreknowing of us in God's plan of redemption. And he says, is there any doubt that God loves you? no doubt in the world peter says there is no doubt god loves you he did all of this for you there is not a millisecond that peter even considers that god did not love you if you are a believer in god all of this plan was laid out for you for the sake of you you are loved period In a very small way, when, when Chopper held out his hand in congratulations, I knew I was loved by him. But it was a human love. It was an imperfect love. When God holds out his hand, he points to the cross of Christ, and he says, this is a perfect love. This is my perfect love for you seen in the spilled blood, the perfect love, the agape love of Jesus Christ. That knowledge of God and what he has accomplished for me, that love and grace cause me to want to obey him. I don't want to return to the, the feudal ways that I inherited from my forefathers. But you know what? Sometimes I do. Sometimes I still sin. Sometimes I go back to those habits of my old man. Sometimes I go back to the things that I know, disrespect and and dishonor the God that I love. And it's it's the battle that Paul describes in Romans 7. He he says, the, the things I want to do, I don't. And the things I don't want to do, I find that I end up in doing. And he says, what a wretched man that I am. And of course, he finds that God doesn't condemn him. Romans 8 verse 1. But when I disobey this God that I love and this God that I know loves me, there's another motivating factor here. Because one of the things that, Keeps me from sinning or returns me to a state of obedience is that I know this God that I love has both the right and the obligation to discipline me, right? If I call him father, that's what Peter says in verse 17, he says, if you call him father, guess what fathers do? Fathers discipline the children who disobey them, right? Let me, let me read, For you, several verses from the book of Hebrews, about six or seven verses, they're gonna be up on the screen, that talk about the discipline of God. Hebrews 12, verse five says, "'Have you forgotten the exhortation "'that addresses you as sons? "'My son, do not regard lightly "'the discipline of the Lord, "'nor be weary when reproved by him.'" You should recognize that, we read that earlier. "'For the Lord disciplines the one he loves.'" Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they, earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, God, disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God disciplines his children. That's what Paul's or Peter rather is driving at in verse 17. look at it again. If you call on him as father who judges impartially, he does judge, but he judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Well, what is that? What is this exile thing? Well, remember, as you're walking on earth, you're actually a citizen of heaven. We're we're in exile here, okay? This isn't our permanent home. While we're here on earth, Peter says, conduct yourselves with fear... The NIV uses the words reverent fear there. I like that because it's not a terror. It's not a dread. It's a reverent kind of fear because that God whom we call Father is going to discipline us as our Father. That's what fathers do with disobedient children that they love. They discipline them. So what does that look like? How does that discipline work? Well, very quickly, I'm going to give you five ways uh, that God disciplines. There might be more, but there's at least five ways. The ordinary way that God disciplines us, and really it's the formative way of his discipline, is that he disciplines us through his word. As As we read the word of God, the spirit takes the word of God that he inspires and he convicts us. As as we cross passages that we're like, oh, that's not me. It should be me, but it's not me. Uh, The Spirit uses that, and and he convicts us, and he he, he causes us to repent. He gives us that opportunity to repent, and, and then he empowers us to change and grow. That's his ordinary means of discipline, which, by the way, is again why it's so important for you to be in the Word of God. If you're not in the word of God, then what tool is he going to use to provide that ordinary discipline? It's this that he's using to change you and grow you. If you're not in the word, how are you going to know how to live? It's, it's, it's in the word. All right, so that's number one. That's the ordinary means of discipline. Secondly, sometimes God brings other men and women into our lives, godly men and women, uh, to bring about his disciplinary guidance. Every so often... Uh, You might have someone, and and I've had this as well, uh, someone will walk up to me uh, and say, brother, I'm not sure that you're being obedient to God in this area of your life. That hurts, let's be honest. It doesn't feel very good when somebody says that, uh, when somebody comes and points out a, a blind spot in your life, assuming, of course, that they're saying that with your best interest in mind. It's humbling. And it hurts because we like to kind of think that we're perfect, right? Kind of think we got this Christian thing down. But assuming they're right and we do need to repent and change and grow, we should give thanks to God that that person had the courage to point out sin in our lives. That is God's grace toward us. Other godly men and women coming alongside. God uses that to discipline us to bring us into conformity uh, to his will. Thirdly, uh, sometimes God uses the church in that process. We call that church discipline. Uh, Matthew 18, that's when when the church becomes involved, the the leaders of the church become involved in that disciplinary process of calling out sin in one of her members. That's another means of God's discipline. And then the last two, uh, sometimes God does the discipline directly. He doesn't use uh, other people. He, d- he just does it himself. Uh, let me show you a couple of these. Sometimes God will use sickness in the life of a believer or suffering in the life of a believer uh, in order to discipline them. Now, don't misunderstand. Uh, not all sickness is the result of God's discipline, but sometimes it can be. Uh, James chapter 5 says this, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of of faith will save the one who is sick and will raise him up. Now notice what gets connected here. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. Sometimes it's sin in the life of a believer that brings about the disciplinary process of God, and sometimes that confession of sin is what God will use then to bring about healing. Again, don't misunderstand. Not all sickness is a result of sin, but sometimes it is. And so that's why when we do anointing services, when when people are calling us to do that, I will ask, do you have any known sin in your life that you need to confess? Let's rule that out before we move ahead. It's a way that God can sometimes directly bring about his discipline. And the last one, which is also directly uh, from God, is sometimes God can just take that believer home to heaven before they cause any more damage to themselves or to the lives of others. Uh, Sometimes it's a premature death that God uses uh, to discipline that that child. 1 Corinthians 11. This is where you see this. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 29 Paul writes this, he says, anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Sometimes God will use that premature death to say, I'm gonna stop this before it causes any more damage. It's a direct hand of God's discipline. Again, it doesn't mean every premature death is that way, but sometimes God can use it that way. So God has the means to discipline and he has the will and he will discipline. Why? Because he loves us and he wants our obedience. That's what a a good father does. And so Peter has just taken these two concepts and he's brought them together. He says, okay, if you call on him as father and assuming that you do, then you need to know two things. That father loves you, but that father will also discipline you. Therefore, have a reverent fear of the fact that God will judge your deeds, and he will judge them impartially. He's not going to look at the color of your skin. He's not going to look at your last name. He's not going to look at your ancestry. Instead, he's going to weigh your deeds, deeds of your mind, deeds of your will, deeds of your affections all of those deeds and any of those deeds that don't align with his holiness he's going to discipline them in his time and in his way don't scorn that don't hate that just have a healthy respect for that and the next time you face sin whatever sin that is whether that's with a classmate or whether it's a co-worker, whether that's with your child or whether with your parent, whenever you face that temptation to sin, remember, one, it was God's grace and love toward us that saved us. That is one motivating factor. But also remember, if I go down this path of sin, God can and will discipline me. I don't want that. So I want this healthy respect that keeps me right here right here in line with his will that's what Peter is trying to point us toward so that reverent fear that reverent awe and respect of that kind of God grows us and motivates us toward greater and greater holiness you see how that works together bow your heads with me I want to ask you a question and then I'm going to pray for us Is there a place in your life right now where you know you're being disobedient to God? Is there a place right now in your life where you know, maybe you haven't told anybody else, but you know you're being disobedient to God? Let me just encourage you. Repent so that you don't face the disciplinary hand of God let that reverent fear of God motivate you toward repentance, confession, and growth in holiness. Let me pray. God, thank you for passages like this that remind us that, yes, we have a God that loves us. We'll we'll revel in that fact forever and ever. We're extremely thankful for that. We also have a God that we call Father, and good fathers discipline their children. So let those two realities, the love and grace of God and the discipline of God, keep us from falling in either ditch. Keep us from falling in the ditch of who cares, I can do whatever I want, I have grace. And help us from falling in the ditch of everything is about exactly what I do, but instead keep us right in the middle of that road loving you, motivated by your grace, and also very aware that you can discipline us when we get out of line. Father, I pray for all of us this morning, if we have areas where we know we're disobedient, that we'd be quick to confess, confess, quick to repent, quick to follow after Jesus. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.